You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. G'day, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news, workers' stories and social justice issues. This program is produced in Melbourne for 3CR on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation and we pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Stick Together is broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Radio Foundation and heard on your own community radio stations. Today's program is part two of a conversation with Kristen O'Connell from the Anti-Poverty Centre in Canberra, looking at how the social security system has been affected by the change of federal government. First up is a reflection on the Robo-Debt Royal Commission. Robo-Debt, the debt fabricator scheme, it's been called, ran for years longer than it would have been otherwise, dragging in tens of thousands of innocent welfare recipients and that uh, there was a conspiracy to exploit the poor in full knowledge that what the government was doing was unlawful. This is what's been said. And you, of course, have been part of the battle against Robo-Debt I mean, this was years and years and years, and it wasn't until the Victoria Legal Aid and a courageous complainant went into bat. Like, it took years and years and years of the work of people like you to actually make this actually come to the fore. Now the government has decided to do a royal commission into it. What are you expecting to come out of the royal commission? Well, yeah, and, and to put this into context for how long you're talking about, I didn't even live on this continent when this started. Um, There has been such a long lineage of incredible activists who were here well before I was pushing this and I'm very privileged to work with some of those people um, and and support and continue the fight against um, cruel and unfair recoupment of funds from the poorest people in the community. I have very low expectations about this Royal Commission um, as you say, the government is seeking to make political capital out of it. But as the RoboDebt Commission itself was being announced, Bill Shorten and Amanda Rishworth put out a public statement explaining that, in their view, under the Morrison government, nearly one in five payments, job seeker payments, were incorrect and that they were going to intensify debt collection activities. And the problem with RoboDebt, of course, it's horrific that these debts were fabricated. But the real problem was not that the debts were fabricated. The problem is that people can't afford to live. And so whether you give me a real debt or a fake debt, I can't afford to pay it, right? And when we talk about these things as debts, we're also really um, misrepresenting what is going on because the vast majority of these overpayments are the result of good faith mistakes because the system is so complicated. Reporting your income is complicated. Um, There are punitive rules that give people a real reason to try and, you know, hide their life from the government because they are financially penalised for things like having a relationship. It is incredibly unsafe to take away people's income support simply because they are in a relationship. Um, But we have all of these reasons why people are ultimately being told you've been overpaid 
Um, again, even the debt letters that are going out now, we are hearing reports that people are getting a debt letter saying this isn't correct, challenging it and having those debts waived because Centrelink is still sending out incorrect debt letters. The reason, the, the method of coming up with the debt figure is not the problem. The problem is that they are lawfully able to try and recoup money from people who can't afford it. And so what I would like to see from the RoboDebt Royal Commission, and I have no expectations of this, is a recommendation that this system should act as a payment accuracy system where the job of the department is to make sure if you were underpaid that you also have that corrected. Um, and then on top of that, if you have been overpaid and it is um, a small amount or received in good faith, that they use the power they have under social security law to waive the debt. And that if they have a debt that is significant and can't be waived, that they treat it like a hex debt, where you will be having that sit there on your file until a time when you have high enough income that you can afford to live and then begin to pay it down out of your tax. These are not big radical concepts, um, but they're not anywhere in the conversation at the moment. So that's the kind of recommendations that we'll be putting in to the Royal Commission in our submission. And it's the kind of thing we'll be putting in um, campaigning for through the federal budget. But at the moment, it's just, it's extremely political the way that they are treating robo-debt and their discussion and approach to recouping funds from poor people. That talks directly to the criminalisation of being poor, right? Yes, absolutely. And I think it's really important. This is a very little known story, but before, in, under the Howard government, um, there had been a series of decisions, criminal penalties applied to people for so-called fraud and people having a criminal record, some people going to jail, this affected 15,000 people and was found to be unlawful. Uh, instead of having those convictions overturned um, under the Labor government in 2008-2009, Tanya Pudisek oversaw um, the introduction of piece of legislation that retrospectively made that criminalisation legal. Oh, my God. So we had people wrong. <laughs> yeah, nobody talks about this, funnily enough. So we have 15,000 people who have a criminal record that they never should have had that the government went out of its way to uphold. So there is a fetish for criminalising poor people and for seeking to extract budget savings from us. It's now creeping into the NDIS. I'm on the NDIS. I've, talked, I've heard from a lot of other people on the NDIS over the last few months about drastic cuts to our plans. I've just had 75% of my psychology sessions cut uh, as of last week. Um, this is very dangerous, but it's also very dependent on people not having the capacity to fight. And that is exactly what RoboDebt was premised on as well. It is the same behavioural economics approach. It is, I got a random mysterious phone call on a Monday night a couple of weeks ago after 7pm saying, can you please justify how this uh, relates to your disability? And I said, well, that's in my medical evidence and in my NDIS plan. And they said, that's okay, that's all we need to know. That is absolutely fishing for people to feel intimidated, to catch us out, to recoup funds. And it is, it, they have literally just recruited someone into the National Disability Insurance Agency who was one of the architects of RoboDebt. Like there is no desire from the government to root this stuff out. They just want to make political theatre out of out of the harm that has been done. The uh, arm's length 
arrangements that are used to do this, phones, uh, computers, where people have no uh, personal investment in the destruction that they're wreaking because it's atomized and it's very much like the uh, American uh, bomb of pilots shooting the people in Iraq. Yeah, it's very dehumanizing. It is isolating and when you receive a phone call out of the blue, particularly if you do have anxiety or, or other mental health issues, it is very distressing. You are caught off guard. It is extremely different to someone making a time with you and you going into an appointment in office and figuring out what they mean and then helping you understand it and then having an opportunity to kind of talk about that and go away and, and figure things out. So it's it's definitely designed to keep the workers at a distance and, and to not see us as humans or as equals. Um, that was also happening in the face-to-face system, but it has made it easier in the way that it's happening now. That, you know, There's been a real shift away from the concept that we do have some level of rights. So even in the employment services system, you do theoretically, once you get given your job plan, you theoretically have 48 hours to think about it and to ask for changes. Now, in reality, most people don't do that because they're not told that they have that 48 hours and they're not told that they are allowed to ask for changes. But it exists. Now, when you're in the NDIS, you receive a plan and it is a dictat. You don't, there's no, you don't need to sign the plan. It's just delivered to you. And that's it. There's no conversation with you. Like you, you talk, you have a planning meeting where you talk about what supports you need, but then just something comes back and mine doesn't reflect what my doctor has said I need at all. Some bureaucrat who is not a medical professional has made a decision about what is going to be necessary for me to get through the next two years. And it does not reflect what I need. So we don't have, we, I've put in appeals in my personal case, but again, most people would see this and go, okay, well, I suppose the system is right. Um, so this kind of harm is being spread throughout a variety of different services and supports that are supposed to exist to make sure that everyone can participate fully in society and they are having the opposite effect. You're on Stick Together, workers' stories, union news and social justice issues. We are chatting with Kristen O'Connell from the Anti-Poverty Centre. We're looking at how a change in federal government is affecting the running of the social security system. We went on to talk about an initiative of the Albanese government called the Economic Inclusion Committee. The um, next thing I want to talk to you about is the Economic Inclusion Committee. Can you tell me about that? Oh, Annie, this is so so disturbing. I mean, I think people who've been uh, who are paying attention to politics would have noticed that the Labor Party seems very keen on consultation and not very keen on action. And this is just another example of that. It was very frustrating to see this as an outcome of the negotiation um, to pass the jobs package at the end of the year. This was done without consultation with poor people. This was done by professional NGO uh you know, advocates who get paid an awful lot of money to talk about poverty. They're sitting on top of the poverty industrial complex and, you know, talking to politicians and propping them up. Um, This is just another part of that. They have, this committee is intended apparently to provide the government with advice about 
what needs to happen with unemployment payments and all social security payments. Um, it, of course, just like The Voice, has no actual power. We've been assured that it will have no power to actually do anything. And again, that we have had heard that rhetoric repeatedly that whatever the Economic Inclusion Committee says, the government will make decisions on the basis of the budget and being, you know, so-called fiscally responsible. Now, the the committee itself, even if, you know, they're not going to do anything with it, but the committee itself is a problem anyway. Now, it's called the Economic Inclusion Committee. As soon as this committee was announced, the Anti-Poverty Centre, the Australian Unemployed Workers Union and other organisations that represent people on the lowest income pushed very hard to be included in the Economic Inclusion Committee that is supposed to give advice about our lives. We have not only had no response from any minister who we've written to about that, we've also, we have also put out a call to, to organisations like ACOS, to the Brotherhood of St Lawrence, who are on this committee and said, "Can you, you should stand in solidarity with us and not give this committee an imprimatur by participating in it until it includes unemployed advocates. And we've seen no action, again, no response from those people who make an awful lot of money from talking about our circumstances. We know that the recommendations from this Economic Inclusion Committee will be inadequate. We also know they will prioritise the needs of service providers over people who have no money. The final kick in the teeth with this committee was the appointment of Jenny Macklin as its chair. Jenny Macklin was the social services minister under the former Labor government, under Gillard and under Rudd. She um, was responsible for the introduction of rules that have seen hundreds of thousands of disabled people trapped on JobSeeker because she tightened eligibility for the disability support pension. She oversaw rules that mean people under 35 who are disabled and eligible for the DSP are doing mutual obligations, which previously were only required of people on unemployment payments. So you are recognised as having a lifelong disability that will seriously hinder your ability to do paid work. And then you are required to go and do work seeking activities because apparently and while you're under 35, you somehow are magically um, less disabled. And then the day you turn 35, you are no longer required to do these things. Um, she oversaw a period in time at which the gap between the unemployment payment um, and the Henderson poverty line dramatically widened. This is not a person who has ever shown any care or consideration for people on the lowest incomes, and she's been the one. She is the one who will preside over what this committee does. So there's no one with expertise in actually being poor, and there are people with expertise in implementing policies that have hurt poor people. I was also interested in the fact that Sally McManus from the ACTU and Jennifer Westacott from the Business Council was on it. The ACTU have been very flimsy uh, in their calls to um, improve the social security system. They had previously supported lifting payments to the Henderson Poverty Line, not very vocally, but they had done so. And uh, last year, they put out a big announcement with ACOS to say that they now support ACOSs for payments which are well below the poverty line. So they've really gone backwards. That is not inspiring. Now, when we raised that issue with them, it appeared they had forgotten their previous position on unemployment payments. Um, we have, as you say, the Business Council of Australia who have never shown that they have the interests of people on low incomes at heart. They find it quite useful that there are so many people afraid of the social security system that they're willing to take incredibly low wages, unsafe working conditions, insecure jobs, 
um, because it, it helps it helps their business owners, right? So um, they're re- certainly not representing the interests of people who want paid work or can't get paid work. They're representing the interests of the wealthiest people and organisations in the country. They could not be further from being having relevant expertise. There's also just a whole bunch of economist wonks who've been saying the same stuff for decades, the governments have ignored for decades, and again, are all based in abstract concepts of what they spit out of a spreadsheet and not what actually happens when you get to the checkout at a supermarket and you don't have enough money in your account for the groceries in your basket. The whole system, you know, that's why we call it a poverty machine. It is because it has been very carefully designed, very intentionally designed now over decades to cause the kinds of harm that are completely predictable and they are designed into the system. None of this is a mistake. None of this is a, it's not a product of negligence either. It is a product of decisions and choices made by both politicians and bureaucrats. There was this idealised period in the post-war years where at the very least there was some form of social investment and expansion of a welfare state. Um, You know, the idea that People should be entitled to a home, for example. Those things have kind of disappeared from view now. Um, It's been a slow ratcheting up of these extremely right-wing policies, and they are right-wing policies, whether it's Labor or the Liberal Party overseeing them, um, to the point now where I can't can't see how we're going to avoid um, worsening suicide rates, worsening mental ill health. We hear from people, and one of our members in particular is regularly hospitalised because of malnutrition. The human cost of what's going on is incalculable. There is a lot of rhetoric from people in government about things like the suicide rate and wanting to tackle those things. But we have research from, for example, the Australia's Mental Health Think Tank, whose lead, Prof Marie Thiessen, said the fastest and most effective thing that the government could do would be to bring payments back up, bring back the $550 additional payment that existed in 2020 to address the mental health crisis because poverty and being forced into mutual obligations is itself causing mental ill health. And we would take a lot of pressure off the strained mental health system if we were to do that. They're very inconsistent in their rhetoric and their um, presentation of caring about people who are vulnerable for a variety of reasons and the reality of what they're inflicting on us. Well, I go back to Amanda Ishworth's quote, difficult decisions mean responsible cost of living relief with an economic dividend and call it sweating neoliberalism. Yeah. And, you know, everyone knows that the economic dividend of giving poor people money is that we spend it and it goes directly back into the economy, not sitting in tax-free superannuation accounts for decades until we're old enough to live luxurious retirements. Um, there is an enormous economic dividend of making sure people have enough money to live. It's just not uh, convenient for them to talk about that because they don't want to have to justify spending money on people who re- rely on welfare to live. Um, but they're also really out of touch with the community. And we've seen this with things like um, marriage equality, where politicians felt that there was some big scary response waiting for them in the wings if they were to come out in favour of marriage equality. But the community was like, why haven't we done this yet? And in the lead up to the election last year, there was some polling that was specifically done in five marginal seats that were held by the coalition at the time that showed very high levels of support for a dramatic increase in payments. And the thing they were asked is, would you support lifting job seeker to at least the pension? And I think the lowest of those five seats had 58 
percent support and the highest had 72 percent support so it's not an election losing policy but of course the government is afraid that the coalition will attack them if they dare spend money on the poor now let's go to what the anti-poverty center would like i guess if we look at the very big headline ones then of course it is lift all payments to at least the henderson poverty line and then we need to do the work of actually developing a sophisticated measure measure of poverty for the 21st century. So it's not adequate to lift payments to the Henderson Poverty Line and then just leave it be. Um, when they were at that level in 2020, ACOS itself did some research that showed a third of people were still regularly skipping meals when payments were at that level. So that is a triage measure. And then we need to work with government. Unemployed people need to be given a role in developing a meaningful measure of poverty. Um, of course, abolishing mutual obligations and investing in supportive, high-quality public sector employment services that actually offer people the help that they want and need to become, um, you know, more confident in entering the world of paid work. Um, and then we have a whole raft of things around housing. Uh, as I said, I've kind of talked through some of our specific proposals on things like debt recovery, um, the list, I could probably keep here all day. I'm just thinking through what's on my federal budget submission, um, and it is a very, very lengthy one. Think, things like providing access to income support for people who live on this continent, because at the moment an enormous number of people are poor um, because they don't get any access to income support at all. Changing things like the partner income test and the parental income test so that people are financially independent and able to leave unsafe homes or not even unsafe homes, just to have some agency and, you know, get to live life as an adult with ha without having to rely on people around you to survive. Um, so that's just a small number of the things that we've put forward. Um, but, yeah, we, 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 we know that if we were to able, able to lift payments, um, that would make take an enormous amount of pressure off millions of people overnight. Has the basic card income control program being got rid of? No, so that's another big um, area of concern for us. So there was, a, and we were part of a large push when the cashless debit card was abolished last year um, to also have the basics card abolished at the same time. Um, we did point out through the process of that bill going through parliament, um, the very large number of quotes that Senator Mullandiri McCarthy herself has made saying that the basics card is racist um, it is an intervention-era policy that breaches human rights of First Peoples in the Northern Territory, um, and also that it is imposed in a, in a couple of other communities, Doomadgee, Cape York. Um, that the, the government insisted that the reason they could not get rid of the basics card at the same time as the cashless debit card was because they need to do consultation. Now, over every inquiry that has happened since 2007 into income control, Communities in the Northern Territory have been on record extremely clearly that they do not want forced income control. There is no need for more consultation about what people want to have happen with that program. It needs to go. Um, it is now means that in this country, we have even more racist income control programs than we did before the cashless debit card was abolished because now we're talking more than 80% of people on this program are Indigenous. So about 20,000 people in the Northern Territory are affected. Um, there were several thousand people on the cashless debit card in the Northern Territory and they wrote specifically into the bill a provision that forced them back onto the basics card instead of allowing them to exit the cashless debit card. So it, there's a lot of misinformation and disturbingly the minister put out um, 
some information on her social media this week saying, I want to counter some misinformation about cashless welfare in the Northern Territory. There has been no change to cashless welfare in the Northern Territory, which is untrue because the change was simply that people who should have had the option to leave the cashless debit card were forced onto the basics card. So those people were directly and adversely affected by the change. People who were on the basics card and hadn't gone off it um, have had no change themselves. So there not only hasn't been any change, there is no signal from government that it's willing to make any change. They have already committed to do nothing in the current calendar year, but said that their excuse is they need to do consultation. Well, they didn't feel the need to wait longer to do ca- to do consultation on the cashless debit card. So it's very difficult to see how um, a program that has had far longer resistance from the community requires any more time. There's obviously a lot of um, racist furor about what's going on in the Northern Territory right now and a lot of misrepresentation of how supposedly unsafe things are in the Pantway, in Alice Springs. And, um, you know, I, I always go back to some statistics from 2020 when payments were doubled and uh, there were no mutual obligations. And you literally see the months that that change came in, crime rates halved. I, it is extraordinary when you look at this data, what happened for that six-month period. So there are very fast solutions that governments could put in place, making sure people have enough money to live, oddly enough, reduces property crime. Um, I heard a really, um, you know, saw a really great point made from someone this week that kids in these communities where there is not adequate housing, where there is no um, adequate income support, feel that they have no future and no control over their future. And so what is their incentive to kind of uh, go out and try and get themselves ahead in life? If, If people felt supported, they might be taking a different tack. But at the moment, all we're seeing is more punishment and it's only going to make things worse. So it's very frustrating looking at um, these very obvious positive outcomes that exist that we can create through the social security system, a genuine safety net, and instead um, money just being thrown at policing. And again, it's just criminalisation of poverty. That's all it is, right? That's, that the poor kids that get tar- are the ones who get targeted. Um, the poor kids are the ones who end up in situations where... They might be doing something that is criminalised. None of this um, is, is, you know, these things are not separate. They're, they're deeply connected. That's it for Stick Together this week. If you want to catch up with our program, the podcast is available at 3cr.org.au or at your favourite podcast site. And you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr.org at gmail.com or by ringing 03-9419-8377 and leaving us a message. My name's Annie McLaughlin. Remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there is a union for you. And until next time, stick together and keep safe. Where you been? Hey, mystery. I went out on the town and I ain't seen him since Hey, hey, where you been? Well, I shuffled off to the side I took her right outside the lines And I stopped to greet a stranger at the wall Hey, feller, could me and my friend Could we come on in? I heard in here they like the poor I'm tall Where you been?
Listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.